Good morning, Delray. It's a blessing to be here. Uh, like Matt said, we met a handful of years ago at one of the many conferences that, that we've just shared um, in our group of pastor friends, um, visiting and spending time there. And then our church started a pastor's fellowship in Bakersfield with a handful of local churches and some churches down in the LA area, and Matt's a part of that. So we've gotten to hang out and share a lot of meals and, and just talk about ministry and, uh, and our churches, and, and it's, it's a blessing to be here. And so with that said, let's uh, open up God's Word to Psalm, Psalm 54. Psalm 54, <clears throat> and if you would, just follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 7, and open up with a word of prayer. Psalm 54, save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly I sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great blessing of your word. We thank You that it teaches us, that it instructs us, that it corrects us, rebukes us, trains us in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. God, we pray that Your Spirit would be at work this morning through the reading and preaching of Your Word, the preaching of Your Gospel, to, to convict us where conviction is needed, to con comfort us where comfort is needed. That we would be illuminated to the truth of Your Word. And that our, our minds and our lives would be conformed to it. God, we thank You for the love and mercy that You've lavished upon us in Christ that has drawn us into this place to worship You, to hear Your Word, to sing Your praises. It's in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, there's two realities that we all have in common from this psalm. Two primary realities that we all have in common with this psalm. The first reality that we have in common with this psalm is that we will experience troubles of various kinds in this life. We will all in some way, shape, or form, whether individually, personally, or corporately as a family or as a church, we will experience strife. We'll experience struggle, we'll experience suffering, we'll experience uh, strife 
with, with those that we love and that we're close to. We'll experience strife potentially with those that we work with, that we live near. We know that this is a part of living in a fallen and sinful world. We will experience struggles. Struggles with temptation and sin. Struggles against the world. Struggles against the flesh. Struggle against the devil. But the second thing that we all have in common with this psalm is that God is our deliverer. And that God is the sustainer of our souls. We will experience trials of various kinds. We will experience strife. We will experience enmity with others. We will experience sufferings. But brothers and sisters, we also serve a God who has loved us and lavished His grace upon us who will deliver us and preserve us to the end. Psalm 54 is is a masculine of David. You notice in the, the superscript or the, the heading uh, above verse 1, it gives us some information about the psalm, some of the context. Again, it's a, it's a masculine of David, meaning one, it's written by David, and it's a masculine. A masculine is one of many different types of psalms. Typically, uh, a masculine was accompanied when it was read uh, in a corporate worship gathering or with a body of believers, uh, even in the Old Testament, it was accompanied with stringed instruments. So it was, it was a psalm that would be read, read not just for, for prayer, it was for that, but it was also a psalm that was read that they would sing together. Masculines also tend to be contemplative psalms. Psalms filled with wisdom and instruction to impart to the people of God as well as for prayer and for worship purposes. So it's a masculine of David. It's recorded by David. Before he's king is the, the occasion um, of the psalm. It's during a time when uh, King Saul is actually chasing down David. You notice that as well from the heading or the superscript. To the choir master on stringed instruments, a masculine of David when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? So more on this later, but this is the occasion. David is writing from a moment in his life where he's experiencing great persecution and hostility at the hands primarily of King Saul, but through the Ziphites, who we'll look at in a little bit. What's the overarching purpose of Psalm 54? When, when David records this psalm, and when the people of God gathered throughout history in the Old Testament and continuing on to the New Testament, and now what is, what is the purpose of Psalm 54 for you and me? The purpose of Psalm 54 is to teach us, to instruct us, to reveal to us what true faith and faithfulness looks like in the face of strife struggle, and suffering. Because the reality is, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, and we're honest with one another, we don't handle strife, struggles, and suffering all that well. That when we're in the midst of strife or enmity with someone else, 
When we're in the midst of great anxiety and pressure and internal temptation or potentially external temptation and struggle, it can be very difficult to have faith. It can be very difficult to be faithful. Just ask the person next to you. Ask the person who's closest to you in your life, how do you handle strife or struggles and suffering? And they can usually give you a hint at how well you do. We all recognize that in this life that is going to be a constant battle that we have to face. So how is it? How is it that we can grow in faith and grow in faithfulness in the face of troubles? Well, the bottom line, or the big idea for us this morning, is that true faith rests upon who God is and what God has done to deliver us and sustain us. And when we know and understand and grasp and trust in the God who has graciously saved us and is preserving or carrying us on to the end, it will lead to a life of faithfulness. We see this in the life of David expressed in Psalm 54. We see it in Psalm 54 demonstrated firstly in the way that David prays for deliverance. Secondly, we see it in Psalm 54 in the way that David presumes his deliverance or, or expects confidently his deliverance. And thirdly, we see this kind of faith and faithfulness in the life of David expressed in the psalm by the way he praises God for his deliverance. So, so look with me again at verses 1-3 through three as we look at the, the, the prayer requests, the appeal that David makes, where we see him express his faith and his reliance and dependence upon God. Verse 1, David's plea begins like this, Save me, O God, by Your name. Save me and vindicate me by your power. There's the two requests for salvation and for vindication. Salvation is this prayer for deliverance, for help, for rescue, for preservation. In the Old Testament, uh, there's a variety of circumstances where this Hebrew word for um, salvation or, or um, a plea for saving is used. It's used in contexts where there's mortal danger, someone's physical life is threatened, and there's a plea or request for saving or salvation in a physical sense, but it's also used when someone is under great spiritual distress. And David is an example of someone who experienced both at many times in his life. And some of you in this room who, who I don't know, some of you merely just by name, I'm sure you can relate. Not in the specifics of the context that David finds himself in. But you can relate to being in a time of great need and desperation for saving. Maybe it is from mortal danger, sickness, physical distress, as well as spiritual distress. When you're waging war against the world and the temptations of the world, or your own flesh, or the devil himself. 
David pleads that God would save him and rescue him in the midst of his strife, struggle, and suffering. He also prays for vindication. Vindication is to clear or to acquit someone of wrongdoing, to to exonerate, to uphold justice. David is pleading that the Lord would uphold justice. He's being wrongfully pursued. Accusations about his character, accusations about God's calling in his life are being tested and condemned by King Saul and those around him. And David is praying, God, clear me. Clear my name. Reveal your truth in this situation. Vindicate me. We all understand understand on some level this desire as well for vindication. If there's kids in here, you, you know what this feeling might even look like on a smaller scale. Especially those of you who are older siblings. I don't know how many older siblings are in here uh, from the kids and teens, but you know what this desire for vindication is like. If, you have, uh, if you're an older sibling and you have younger siblings, I was a younger sibling growing up, and I spent most of my life blaming things on my older kids or older brother and sister that I had done. And I would get away with it because I was the baby in the family. And if you're an older sibling, you know what this is like. Your younger sibling has blamed something on you. I'm looking at some of you looking at each other right now, so you know what I'm talking about. And you just can't wait for the moment as you've pledged your cause before your parents that God would vindicate you in this moment and reveal the crimes of your younger brother or sister. Kids, you know what this feeling's like, even on that small scale. Adults, you know what this is like as well. Maybe something has gone on at work. Something's happened between you and a coworker. There's been something that's been said about you or something that you've done that you know with all conviction and clarity of conscience that you did not do. And yet there's a false accusation made against you. And this desire, this deep felt need to have your name cleared before your peers, your coworkers, your boss. You know what this is like. Now ramp that up when you consider what David is going through. David is, yes, an ordinary man, but he's an ordinary man who's been called by God's grace. He's been called and commissioned. He's been anointed as God's chosen king of Israel. And look at what is happening to him. He's on the run. He's on the run from from King Saul. He's on the run from from other Israelites. He's on the run. His his claim to the throne by God's grace and by by, by God's calling is being attacked. His righteousness and his right standing before the Lord, if you will, is being called into question. 
because of David's pursuit, or sorry, Saul's pursuit, and those that Saul has risen up against David. And so David, please save me. Save me, Lord. Rescue me from my adversaries and vindicate my name. Uphold your justice. Make, make known the truth of your word to all of these people. Vindicate. Now, notice the basis for his appeal. Why is it that David can, can make this claim and appeal for salvation and vindication? It's not primarily because of anything in and of himself that he appeals to. It's no inherent righteousness that he has, that he appeals to, that he looks to, that says, God, because of all of the good things that I've done, because of my own righteousness, save me and deliver me. That's not what he appeals to. What does he appeal to? He says, save me, O God, by your name. And vindicate me by your power. The basis for his appeal to call out to God for salvation and vindication to acquit Him, to exonerate Him, to uphold God's justice, the basis for that appeal is God's name. Someone's name reveals a lot about them. We, we don't live in a culture where there's as much significance packed into our names. My name's Michael. Um, there's a lot packed into that if you do studies on names, but if you ask my parents, why did you name him Michael? It's because my mom really liked Peter Pan growing up, and I was named after Michael Darling uh, from Peter Pan. So, not too much significance there, right? And, 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 and that's generally the case in our culture. But back then, there was a lot packed into names. There was a lot of significance to someone's name. Good or bad. For example, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25 and verse 25. This is um, within the context of when this psalm is written. David comes in contact with a foolish man named Nabal. And notice what his name means in verse 25 of 1 Samuel 25. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. This is Nabal's wife, Abigail, interceding on behalf of him. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Nabal literally means folly or foolish one. For as his name is, so he is. Poor guy. <laughs> but notice... When David pleads for salvation, when he pleads for vindication, his appeal is on the basis of the name of the Lord. It's on the name of the Lord. It's in the very name Yahweh and all that is packed within that very name that is revealed by God when He gives it. Exodus. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, God 
reveals just a part of his glory to Moses. And as he does so, he says this in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5, he says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, Yahweh, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. When David appeals to God's name for the basis of his salvation and the basis of his vindication, he is saying, God, because you are altogether gracious, because God, you are in yourself altogether loving and merciful and good and righteous and just, because of who you are as you revealed, to your, revealed yourself in your name, save me. Vindicate me. It's because of who God is and David's relationship to who God is that he can make this plea, that he can make this appeal to salvation. It's not because of who he is that he makes this appeal. It's because of who God is that he makes this appeal. It's as if he's saying, as Spurgeon says, let every one of the perfections which are blended in thy divine name, work for me. God is love. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. He's merciful. He's good. And David says, by your name, which reveals all of these glorious perfections of your being, may they work in such a way that I am saved and that I am vindicated. Lord, save me by Your name. Vindicate me by Your might. God's might refers to His ultimate sovereign rule and judgment over man and the affairs of man. Saul's king. Kings hold a lot of weight. They have a lot of authority they can throw around under their domain. David says, but none of that weight, none of that authority comes anywhere near the might and the power and the authority that God has. So God, according to your might, according to your power, according to your authority, vindicate me. According to your righteous rule and judgment, Make your righteousness known in this situation. Why? Again, because David is being tormented. He's being pursued. He's being attacked by King Saul, by a number of Saul's um, second commands, 
by a number of different uh, tribes that are, that are on the side of Saul, one of which is mentioned here in this psalm. Look with me at verse 3. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to my words, the words of my mouth. Verse 3. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. He mentions strangers. He mentions strangers and ruthless or godless men. Strangers. The Hebrew word for strangers, when it's used, is referring to, one, a stranger in the sense that they're, they're not part of one's personal household. They're, they're a stranger to their household or tribe. Or a stranger is often referred to as someone who's not a part of the people of God or the covenant household of God. Now, who are these strangers that he's referring to? Remember that I mentioned in the superscript or the heading. So if you look there with me, just under the Psalm 54 title, it says that this is a mascal of David. On the occasion when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now if you don't know anything about Ziphites, they technically wouldn't really seem to meet the category of stranger. Why? Because they're actually a part of the same tribe as David. They're of the tribe of Judah. So they're not strangers in that sense. And if they're of the tribe of Judah, that means that they are Israelites. They're a part of God's covenant people. They're a part of God's covenant household. And yet, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as recorded here in Psalm 54, refers to the Ziphites as strangers. Those who are foreign to his house and foreign to the covenant people of God. They're foreigners. They're strangers. They're ruthless and godless men. They, they have rejected and stand opposed to the Lord's anointed. Therefore, they have rejected and stand opposed to the Lord Himself. And this is why David, with divine judgment, as the Lord's anointed, can refer to these Ziphites as strangers, as ruthless and godless men who have not put God before their eyes because if they had, they wouldn't stand against the Lord's anointed. There's two examples, two moments in David's life where the Ziphites actually turn on him and report him to Saul. The first one, I think it's shown on the screen in your bulletin, is 1 Samuel 23, 19. We won't spend much time there. I just want to give you the, the context that this is in. But 1 Samuel 23, 19 is the first time that we have recorded where I think the title of this psalm specifically is coming from. 1 Samuel 23, 19, Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among the strongholds of Horish? They come to Saul, knowing that David is hiding in their region and hiding in their territory, 
And for whatever reason and motivation that they have, where it's not given to us, we know that no matter their motivation, they know where David is at. And they side with Saul. And they go and they tell Saul, this is where David is hiding. If you remember the rest of the story, uh, Saul goes and, and tracks David down. And David actually has a, a moment where he has the upper hand on Saul and he has the opportunity to take Saul out. If you remember, David shows mercy to Saul. And again in, in 1 Samuel 26, 1 Samuel 26, verse, verse 1, a second time. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hekeliah, which is just before Jeshimon? Again, going to Saul, siding with Saul, standing opposed to David, ratting him out, Saul pursues David. Again, David has a chance, shows mercy. But we have two times, two times where these Ziphites, who are of the tribe of Judah, who are part of the nation of Israel, they stand against the Lord's anointed. And therefore, as David rightfully, justly condemns, they stand opposed to the Lord Himself. Because the two are ultimately equated. To stand opposed to the Lord's anointed is to stand opposed to the Lord. Their actions validate David's words of condemnation here. And so because these strangers, these foreigners, these ruthless men who have sought his life, who ultimately stand opposed to the Lord, David, please, God, according to your righteousness, according to your just judgment, of all humanity and all human affairs, vindicate my name. Vindicate the word that you have spoken of me, that has called me and commissioned me and anointed me as your Messiah. Vindicate me. Save me by your name. David's plea here highlights the utter desperation of man and our ultimate dependency upon our sovereign, gracious Lord in all things. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in you, there's nothing in you that deserves salvation, preservation, vindication. Nothing. It is a plea made on the basis of God's name, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy that we can cry out for these things. And just as David expresses this, this deep sense of desperation and dependency upon God's sovereignty and God's grace and God's mercy, does this manifest itself in your prayers? Do you read David's sense of urgency and dependency and look at your own prayer life when you're in those moments where you're in the midst of battling against the world, the flesh, the devil, temptations from, um, from your own life and your own mind or temptations externally or 
enmity and strife and the anxiety that wells over you in those moments. Do you go to the Lord in prayer? And when you do, do you have this shared sense of dependency and desperation that God's mercy, God's salvation of you and rescue of you in that moment is all of grace. You are completely and wholly dependent upon Him. Do you express that in your prayers as David does? May we be a people that, that do. And may God strengthen our faith to do that. We see, God, or we see David express his faith and his faithfulness by the way that he prays for deliverance. As we just looked at in these first three verses, we also see David express his faith and his faithfulness by the way he presumes his deliverance. He prays for deliverance, but he also presumes his receiving of deliverance. He expects it confidently. He prays, God, vindicate me and save me. And he also expects God to be faithful to do so. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. God is my helper. He can say this with confidence. Why? David can make this confident claim that God is his helper, one, on the basis of God's character as we just looked at, as revealed in his divine name. But most specifically here on the basis of David's covenantal union with God. Again, David is God's anointed. David has been called out by God from among the people of Israel to be Israel's king. The one who ultimately would typify and point to the greater king of God's people to come, Jesus. But David is this anointed one. He is this king that has been called. And so David with great confidence can expect that the Lord will help him because God is faithful to His covenant promises. God will help me. He will deliver me. He will rescue me. He will, he will save me. Not on the basis of my plea, not on the basis of, um, of my, my own felt sense of confidence, but on the basis of His faithfulness to His Word and the faithfulness to His character as He's revealed himself to me. God is my helper. And so he confidently expects that God will be faithful to help him, to preserve him. He says that God is my sustainer. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. You can also translate that text as the Lord is among the upholders or uphold. God is among the sustainers of my life. As if to draw out the idea that there are a number of different means that God is using to uphold David's life. There are people that God has put in David's life. People like Jonathan, Saul's son, 
David's closest friend, whom God has used to sustain and uphold David. And if this is a proper way to translate the text, the, the, the overarching point is the same. That God is the sovereign one. God is the sovereign one who is providentially orchestrating the events and the people in David's life to uphold him and sustain him. Why? Because he's the Lord's anointed. Because God has graciously called him and set his love and affection upon him. God is my helper. He will help me. There's a sense of confidence there. He is my sustainer. Or he's among the sustainers. He's the one who's orchestrating all the events and things in my life that is preserving me up until this point. So whether it's through people, events, or circumstances, God in his sovereignty is always at work for his glory and David's good. And brothers and sisters, those of us who are looking to Christ, this ought to be great comfort for us as well. A comfort that we can confidently grab hold of. That we can look to in faith to stir us up to trust and dependency. That if you are in Christ, the Lord's anointed. The true and greater, true and better David. The one whom David points to. If you are in Christ, you as well can be confident that the Lord is your helper. He is your sustainer. That He is orchestrating all things in your life. The people, the circumstances, the places, and the events. He's orchestrating all of it for His glory and your ultimate good. Romans 8, 27-28. For we know this, that all things work together for good. For those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. All things. God is working, working orchestrating for your ultimate good, not the good that, think, that you think you need in the moment, but He's working all things for His glory and your ultimate good. And what is that? Paul goes on to say in Romans, it's your conformity and likeness to Christ. That's what He's doing. Just as He is among the upholders of David's life, just as He is the ultimate sovereign one preserving David, He is the one who's ultimately sustaining, helping preserving and guiding you to your proper end, just as he did David. So we too, brothers and sisters, can confidently, confidently look to the Lord in faith and expect, not on the basis of anything in us, but on the basis of the promises that he's revealed by grace in Christ, we can confidently expect we can confidently be assured of an outcome that leads to our salvation and our deliverance. David, in verse 5, moves on to express something else he's confidently expectant of. He expects God's grace and salvation and sustaining his soul. He also confidently expects retribution. He presumes, he expects that God will be faithful to His Word and promise, to His character, 
to save him, to rescue him, and to vindicate him. That retribution will be enacted on those who have stand opposed to the Lord and the Lord's anointed. God will do to them what they sought to do to David and tenfold. Deuteronomy 19, 18-19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just mention it briefly. Um, where the Lord is, is describing to Israel the, the, the processes by which um, certain laws and consequences are to be carried out. And, and one of those consequences is retribution. When someone is wrongfully charged, when false accusations are made against them, he says this in Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 18, the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And this is precisely... This is precisely the judgment that David is calling upon the Ziphites. They they have raised themselves up against him, that they have joined in with Saul the false accusations or the false charges, the false attacks, the injustice, and David, righteously so, Please to the Lord's justice that the Lord would be faithful to His word and faithful to His justice. You who bear His name, you who are in Christ, you too can confidently expect God's faithfulness to preserve you, to save you, and to vindicate you. Because He is our God and we are His people. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we are guaranteed in this life. We are guaranteed in this life of persecution and struggles. We're guaranteed it. Promise that it is going to come. 2 Timothy 3.12, I'm just going to list off and read a couple of passages so you don't need to try and jump around but 2 Timothy 3:12 says indeed all who desire to live a godly or live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's not an if. It's a when, it's going to happen if you desire to live a godly life, if you pursue righteousness, Jesus says, "Blessed are you when you are persecuted against." If you seek to live a life following after Christ, building your life upon Him and nothing else, you will experience persecution. You will experience enmity from a lost and sinful world. You will. It will happen. James 1-2, a very familiar passage that many of you are probably familiar with. That doesn't come with immediate comfort when you read it. It says this, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet encounters uh, or when you encounter various trials. 
You will experience persecution in this life for following Christ. And you will experience trials. I thought the Christian life was supposed to get easier when I decided to follow Jesus. No, in fact, often the the promise is the opposite in this life. You will experience hardships. You will experience suffering. You will experience strife and enmity and struggles. You will. We are guaranteed of that. But Delray Church, we're also guaranteed as those who are followers of Jesus, we're also guaranteed of preservation and vindication. God will preserve you. He will guide you through the various circumstances, people, places, and events in your life. He will guide you and preserve you till your appointed end. His glory, your ultimate good. That will happen We can be assured of that. Your vindication. God will right all the wrongs. He will. Christ will stand in judgment over His enemies. They will be His footstool. And they'll be placed under your feet as well. But the timing of that is not always maybe the way we desire or the way that that works itself out is not always the way that we dream and scheme. But we entrust ourselves to the good and wise and gracious God to preserve us, to save us, to deliver us according to His wisdom, His might, His grace. We trust in His righteousness, His just judgment, not our own, to vindicate us. We know that it will happen. If not in this life, we know it will come in the life to come. We know. We know this to be true. 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Our suffering, our persecution, and the God's upholding of our life is a means by which He manifests and reveals the glory of the Gospel of Jesus in our lives. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. That is assurance that you can have because of Christ and your union with Him. We can be confident that God will preserve us. We can be confident that God will vindicate us as well. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Paul reminds us how we ought to properly respond even to the injustices in our own lives, the enmity and the strife that we experience. God is a just and righteous judge. Vengeance is His. I'm not saying that we, you know, we don't pursue whatever um, potential legal um, opportunities we have in our state um, and in our country, right, to, to, to fight against certain injustices. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a, a, a place of rest that we ought to hold on to. That even when we pursue those means, small civil issues or larger ones, there's a spirit that we all take on which we entrust ourselves to the just judge of all things. That He will orchestrate, that He will bring about in His divine wisdom and justice, He will bring about what is ultimately true and just and right. By His own wise and gracious providence. And we know We know in His Word that He will do this. As He's revealed to us here in these texts and a number of other texts. When we look at the picture of Revelation and we see His great salvation of His church and the judgment of the nations, we know that God will, God will stand firm in His righteousness. So we're guaranteed, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, we're guaranteed of persecution and struggles but we're also guaranteed of preservation and vindication. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of His life of righteousness and His sacrificial death and His resurrection. That's the basis by which you can have assurance of these great realities. Because of who God is as He's made Himself known in Christ His taking on your punishment, you receiving His righteousness. You have no appeal in and of yourself to claim these things, but only the grace of God is revealed in Jesus. That is it. And if you do, you can stand confident of these things. Just as David, the Lord's anointed, could stand confident of these outcomes in his life of preservation and vindication from his enemies. And this leads to a life of faith and faithfulness in the face of struggles and troubles, trials and temptations, strife and enmity, casting our dependence upon God, confidently expecting what is ultimately ours in Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7 in Psalm 54. We see David's faith and faithfulness to the Lord expressed again in these verses by the way that we see David praise God for his deliverance. You know that David is likely writing this psalm after going through this whole ordeal and writing back his plea, writing back what he expected of God and and then writing in his response to all that God had done Verses 6 and 7 says this, willingly, or with a free will offering in the ESV, willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for He has delivered me from all trouble. 
and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. David expresses praise. Why? Because God has delivered him. And he has triumphed over his enemies. And brothers and sisters, we too can confidently look forward to the day in which we will experience our final deliverance from the sinful and fallen world. From all strife, struggles, and sufferings. We can look forward with confident expectation of it. We can rejoice and praise God in that triumph that we will experience because of Jesus' work. So David responds to, to all of God's grace in his life, his deliverance and his vindication. He says, with, with a free will offering. With a free will offering. A free will offering was, was a significant voluntary offering and sacrifice and di- direct response to something extraordinary that God had done. This was different too, and it was, it was in addition to the yearly or regular sacrifices and offerings that the Israelites would give year in and year out. They had religious duties that year in on their calendar that they would, they would devote themselves to certain offerings and sacrifices. A free will offering, though, was something special. It was something in addition. And David says, in light of all that you've done here in my life, a free will offering I give to you a sacrifice of, of praise, I give thanks to you. David would, would spend his time and much of his life devoting himself to expressing his thanks and praise to God for his deliverance. Through giving voice and acknowledgement to all that God had done in his life. And we see an example of that in Psalm 54. And much of the Psalms that are written by David, even the ones that expresses his deep anxiety and pressure, there's always a moment or a turn in the Psalms where David takes time to thank and praise God. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is that the proper response to all that God has has done for us in our salvation, our preservation, and His governance in our life, and what He will do in in our glory. The proper response is is worship. And yes, worship in the lifting of our voices and, and singing praises and telling, telling others about His wonderful works. But it's also the giving of our lives, the holy and faithful living. That that's 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 worship. Lifting our voices and giving our lives. That's what Paul tells us in, in, in Romans 12:1. In view of the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, This is your spiritual service or your rational worship. The only rational response, logical response to what God has done for you in Christ is to give your life to Him. God has ransomed you from sin. God has freed you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Not so that you are free 
to do whatever it is that you want to do in your own flesh and your life. You're free to live in union with Him and to live according to His will and not the will of your sinful flesh. He's freed you as a slave to right unrighteousness to become a slave to righteousness. Our response to God's grace, to God's mercy, to all that He's done for us in Christ, is to lay our lives at His feet. To open our mouths, to speak about Him, to exalt Him in the way that we sing when we're corporately gathered, or when we speak about Him to our, our friends, our families, our co-workers, our neighbors, whoever it is, and to give our lives to Him for His glory. That is a worshipful response to all that God has done for us. Brothers and sisters, these two great realities that we all have in common in Psalm 54, that we will experience troubles of various kinds in this life, and that God is our deliverer and sustainer, that ought to be a great balm and comfort to our souls this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been experiencing in your life coming into this room, but that is a truth that we all need to hear. And may we, in the face of distress, in whatever way that comes, may we rest upon who God is and what God has done to deliver us and sustain us in Christ. And may these truths lead us to pursue a life of thankfulness and faithfulness in, in response. All of this is communicated ultimately in Psalm 54, revealed in His Word. It's also all ultimately pictured for us in the two sacraments that God gives us, in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, God pictures to us the Gospel. He pictures to us our assurance in Christ. He pictures to us the assurance of our forgiveness of sins. He pictures to us in communion um, our right standing, our justification, and our adoption into the family of God. This is a family meal that we all share. And it reminds us and pictures that to us. And if we are God's family, then we can be confidently assured that He will carry us to the end. That He will preserve us and that He will vindicate us. Just like we see Him do in the life of David and so many around us. So brothers and sisters, it's been a, a blessing and a privilege to be with you and to worship with you. Preach God's Word to you. Let's pray together and, uh, and continue to worship. Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for the grace and the love and the kindness that You've lavished upon us in Your Son. God, may we take hold of Him by faith in the hearing of Your Word and in the receiving of communion. May our, our, our faith be strengthened. God, may our, our, our confidence and our understanding of who You are and what You've done and what You're doing in our lives be strengthened and be encouraged and comforted. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would apply um, to our lives these truths. 
Um, it's in Jesus' name and for His sake that we pray.